All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you uh, that he rules and reigns as the conquering king, and we are his. And being his um, has with it an obligation, a duty, and a delight for us to obey the rules of the kingdom, the laws of the king. And we pray that we would have hearts that would seek to do that more faithfully and more authentically. And as we go through our passage this morning, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the, the, um, the need for practical change, not just theoretical change. And we thank you for your word that convicts us and encourages us toward a more consistent um, life because of what Christ has done for us. It's in His name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Leviticus 19. Um, We've said this probably countless times as we've gone through Leviticus. What is holiness? What is holiness? Set apart. Set apart, uniqueness, distinctiveness, and, and that, we, we think of that really in, in, in general terms. In the passage today, we're going to see that it's not only distinctive and unique or, and set apart generally, but specifically, holiness means being set apart in the sphere in which the thing exists. Remember we talked about, back in Leviticus 11, the unclean and the clean animals, right? The, the pig was not clean because even though it... Uh, had the cloven hoof, it didn't chew the cud. You know, it was an ab- anomaly within its thing. So there's this idea of things being set apart within their proper sphere. Um, in this section, we see the principle borne out in several categories, and it continues this question that we started in the Holiness Code. What does holiness look like for the layperson? And for us, the questions I think we need to be asking this morning not only that, but also, what does this say about God? What does it say about man? What is it calling on me to do? As I'm reading Leviticus 19, what does it say about God? What does it say about man? What is it calling on me to do? Let's look at uh, in verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. What does this have to do with holiness? We got breeding practices, planting practices, fashion practices. What does this have to do with holiness? Why would he go here? These are probably things that were going on around them. Okay, and we're talking about there is ritual purity that we've talked about before, and then now we're in the holiness code that talks about a way of living for the layperson that displays the holiness of God. What does it matter how you breed your cattle? It only matters if you're patterning, uh, patterning it after God. So if 
God's character is one way, and he tells you to, to do this a certain way, to be separate, to not blend over the, the walls, then you do it. Okay. As kind of a, you know, the iconic era, they would build uh, table legs in the shape of, of icons to remind them of things. Well, this could be a reminder of, of how to be holy as well. What's the difference between the animals he's talking about? We'll start with that. What's the difference? You shall not what? What does the language say? Let your livestock breed. Let your livestock breed. Go ahead. With what? Another kind. Another kind. Uh, the the language there actually the the breeding uh, in the ESV and the the Hebrew actually says to 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 lie down generally is a kind of a metaphorical deal. Um, the way that the language works, so it's a, it's, a, it's a causative thing, not to force to lie down. Now, if you've ever been around animals, generally you don't have to force that. That's just something that they're all about. What is it about these types of animals that they would have to force that to happen? What does it say? Different kind. Different kind. Have you uh, any ideas or anything come to mind about where that language is used before? By kind. Of every kind. Okay, there's an ark. What else? With people, men with men and women with women. Okay, so you see that carrying on of that distinctiveness that God creates the way that's supposed to work. What else of every kind? Of uh, whenever it talks about kinds, what other kind of language? Do, do you remember? I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, in Genesis 1, how God created, how did He create animals? Each according to its kind, right? So, the idea here is uh, the, the breeding, the forcing of the breeding of a dog and a cat, for example, that's not going to happen naturally. That's going to be forced. What does that say about the person that would force the crossing of kinds, the cross-breeding of, of kinds. What, what does that say? They're going against the way God intended it. It's against the created order. This is a push to blur the distinctions that God has set up in the created order. The idea here is that it's a rebellion against what God has done. It's usurping His authority as Creator to try to force those things. Now... Does that have any application for us today, three-parent kids? Does that have any application at all? Well, of course it does. We're, you know, the idea of if we can do it, let's do it, it has applications for scientific research and implication and all kinds of things. God is God, we're not. And you see that happening here. Just because you can do it, just because you can force it to happen, don't, because I'm God, you're not, right? And it's the same thing you see with these seeds. That sounds like a silly thing, doesn't it? To, to crossbreed seeds, to force an orange and an apple to merge into one. If, if you're trying to, again, blur those distinctions, that's a, that's a rebellion against God as creator. What about the fabrics? Why would that be an issue? 
Who wore blended fabrics in Israeli, Israelite, godly, in Israelite society? I keep thinking Yasser Arafat. Israelis. So who? The priest did. So the layperson wasn't supposed to wear blended fabrics. Why? To have a distinction. To maintain that distinction between God's appointed leaders that that are um, that are uh, shown by the funny hats and the different clothes that they wear. The layperson was not to take on that role of looking like the priest. Because God had set apart a tribe, Levi, certainly the sons of Aaron, to take on that role, and he didn't want the distinctions to be blurred. This was a constant temptation for Israel. Early on, we see that there were lay people that tried to take on some of these roles, and and whenever there was the big civil war in Israel, um, the northern kingdoms set up their own priesthood out of just anybody, if you bought into it. It's kind of like a Catholic archbishop. Anyway, if you buy into it, you can be that... Um, that religious figurehead. But that's not the way God set it up. So again, it's a rebellion. It's a sign of rebellion um, against the created order. Holy people respect the creational design categories he has established. Crossbreeding and cross-fertilization of living things is a picture of rebellion against his design and therefore his position as creator. Ignoring these distinctions, in effect trying to destroy these distinctions, is to rebel against the creator himself. Notice that this doesn't prohibit uh, the, the breeding and the mixing within kind. Taking two dogs and coming up with a better breed, or taking two goats coming up with a better breed, Spanish, come, is not... A bad thing. That's not what he's talking about. But you take a sheep and a goat, that's not going to work. You take a, a horse and a cow, that's not, that's, there's kind issues there. Um, all right. How do we apply, how do we apply this today? Does the New Testament distinguish church leaders by the clothing they wear? Thank God that, that, that we're good Baptists and we don't believe in wearing the frocks and the things and the, they're bunchy. Um, we don't believe that. But, but there is a um, distinction that he makes on the authority and the responsibility places on church leadership that he doesn't on lay people, right? There is that. Although we're all called to strive in holiness, there is a... a don't all of you strive to be a teacher? <laughs> You're held more accountable, double accountability for that. So there's there is a there is a, a distinction that's made, but it's not based on clothing. It's based on on kind of a calling or gifting. Um, all right, holiness demands that we honor the distinctions that God has placed upon His creation and upon us. Verse twenty. And I love the way each of these just flows naturally into the next one. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord for to the entrance of the tent of meeting a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. What's going on here? 
What's the distinction here? Slave and free. Slave and free, okay. It's technically committed to another person. Okay. What's not taking place in this commitment? What what is what has she not received yet? She's not been, it's our word, starts with R, ends with edeemed. She has not been redeemed. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's put this out there. Let's say you have a servant girl, and a man has sex with the servant girl, and the master of the servant girl has promised her to another guy as a, as a bride. And don't get all freaked out about that. In the culture, every marriage was arranged. Personally, with my two girls, I'd like to go back to that, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, every marriage was arranged, and so that was just the way the culture worked. So the, the master of the servant girl has promised her as a bride to somebody else, but some other guy seduces her, or they have this thing, and they found out about it. What normally would you think would happen in that society? Put to death. Put to death. Why? Because it's adultery. Is it adultery here? Yes. Is it? Provision was made for it, but doesn't mean it wasn't. How is it adultery? What is it that makes the bond culturally between a man and a woman? What happens? There's a period that we know calls it starts with a B. Betrothal. What is involved there? Do you know? Okay. Commitment. Money is exchanged. Yes. A bride price is... Commitment. A bride price... Not unlike today. Um, a bride price is paid. And by that paying of the price, the slave girl, the servant girl, becomes redeemed and under the authority of the guy who's paid the price. The master has made a promise to the guy who's going to pay the price. Somebody else comes in and causes him to break that promise. Right? When you make an oath, how do they typically make an oath? Invoking whose name? God's name. And so he's caused him to defame God's name by breaking the oath because of what he's done. She's not the promised guy's bride. He hasn't paid the bride price. She hasn't been redeemed. But there has been the breaking of an oath. And so what happens here is two things. One, there is the typical penalty for not adultery, but fornication, which is what? Remember this from Exodus. We talked about this a long time ago. Scourging. Scourging. Should be. Um, what happens is he, pay, he, he ends up paying a, a bride price for her and marries her, and then has to take care of her as if she were, I mean, she becomes his wife. If, you, if there's a fornication issue, they, they force him, basically, to marry. You don't just get to run around the country happy and free. You're now married to this woman. And, stop it. And you're, you're married to this woman. And so, but there's an additional thing here, and that, and that he has uh, caused the, the master to break his oath. So what happens? He's also got to make a, a reparation or a guilt offering, it's called here, for, for the profaning of God's name. That's what's at issue, is making sure, is, is, is keeping what is sacred, sacred, which is the Lord's name.
Um, all right. No, it, it, it is, it is uh, dealing more with the oath here. And in the context of, it's making a distinction between one who's betrothed and one who's not. So that if they were betrothed, then that would be an adulterous situation. They'd both be stoned, right? But because they weren't, he has to marry her, which is a, a law that was established before, and because she was under the authority or under the she was property, basically, of uh, this, the master... He has, to re- he has to make a reparation to the master for causing him to sin uh, in, in making a false oath. So, yeah. I can't help but think of David and Solomon with all the wives and concubines that they had and how this, these laws from Leviticus were way before him that shows how far Israel slid. You know, and how oh, they stretched the line. They, look, if we ever get to Judges, well before the kings... They slid, Bubba. They slid fast. I mean, it was... That is probably one of the... It's basically the American history book, Judges. It, it's become... <laughs> Holiness requires us to think through how our actions impact not just ourselves, but everyone around, else around us. He's not, when he sins, he's not just impacting himself and the girl. He's impacting the guy to whom she was promised, and he's impacting the master of... There's, there's a communal aspect to, to the pursuit of holiness here. All right, look at verse 23. When you come into the land, and again, it flows, it just flows. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord. What is going on here? We go to don't crossbreed to, well, to, to, to an oath thing. We'll say it that way. To an oath thing, to now trees and fruit. First of all, where are they going to where's this going to take place where would this law apply in the promised land what does that tell you they'll get there they'll get there there's a promise to the promised land so they're they're going to get there there's a, inside the law there's hope you will be able to plant a fruit tree someday and it will be yours but here's how i want you to deal with that um, fruit trees just to let you know we have some peaches in the front yard that we've had for several years, and it's very frustrating. Because the first few years that you have them, they really don't produce very much. It's these little beanie things, and you gotta pick them off and let the tree kind of nourish itself again. It's just, a, you know this, it's a pain to do it. Uh, so, rather than try to, and we did this one, we broke this law, we, we tried to eat some the first year, and it was just, this is pointless. Rather than do that, God says to them, the way that they are to, uh, to encourage this, it's forbidden to eat for three years. That word forbidden, you may have a textual note. What does it say? Well, not... Uncircumcised. The tree is uncircumcised to you. 
Now, if that's going to keep you from eating it for the first three years, I don't know, you know. I know the joke you So, you have this idea of taboo, forbidden. This is an all-guy class this morning, except for poor Laura. You have this idea. That's why Eric keeps whispering in her ear. Um, it's okay, honey. We'll get out of here soon. Um, you have this idea of the tree being forbidden and, and something that is uh, inappropriate, not fit for its not fit for consumption, for three years, right? And any time that word is used, it generally means something outside the kingdom, something that's not covenantal. Uh, one, one of the smart guys had the idea that it's calling it uncircumcised means that it needed to be pruned to be more, you know, fruity. And I don't know. Go, go figure. Fruity. Fruity. Yes. Uh, it's a metaphor for something not working properly or is inappropriate. Um, what happens in the fourth year, though? Something that was forbidden now becomes holy. holy. Why is that? Because God says, you've been obedient, and do you get to eat the fruit in the fourth year? No. First fruit goes to God, and typically that would mean take a bushel to the priests, right? That's where that goes. It's, a, it's an offering of praise. Why, for what? I don't get to eat it. For him bringing them to the land. For him bringing them to the land. And for the anticipation of the fifth year where you're going to get to eat it, we see the promise on the tree of something worth eating. It's no longer forbidden. Thank you. And then we sit around and wait till the fifth year where it says they can eat it to increase its yield. Is this a... You, you, you obey and consuming so that you can increase its yield. Is that what it's talking about? What, what does that mean? Well, when you have a tree in its fifth year, your typical uh, um, production or your typical yield or harvest is going to now be increased by at least one tree, right? It increases the yield accountable to you because it's the fifth year. It's yours now. Um, holiness proclaims that the fruit of our labor is not ours to do with as we please. All right, look at verse 26. Again, the flow. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. What strikes you about this section? What's the one word that everybody focuses on and thinks of their favorite Reformed preachers? What, what, what's the word? Tattoo. What's going on here? Don't eat blood. We've seen that before. It's like the fourth time it's said in Leviticus. The whole thing seems like separation from the people around it. Because all of these are practices that are performed by... Culture. Right. This is a separation of the people around them. All these are practices performed by the culture. We shouldn't have goatees. Shouldn't, shouldn't have um, hipster haircuts. Hipster haircuts <laughs> for, for Bowdoin. It's uncircumcised. Um, yeah, what? Ah, interesting. They're worshiping other gods by doing it. Um, 
The reading, we'll start with the reading, uh, the blood thing we've seen. And again, that, again, I think you're right, is, 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 is a nod toward Canaanite rituals and eating the blood and the meat and sacrifices. The reading of omens and fortune telling were also part of the pagan worldview. Why, why is God telling them not to do this? What's the underlying issue there? Who are they to trust for the future? God. Whether he told it to them or not. Right? I mean, there were, there were ways for them to, at that time, uh, uh, divine God's will, so to speak, through the Uman and Erman and th- what is it? Thuman and th- I forget how you say that. The two dice thing that was in the pouch of the uh, Uma Thurman, what? Uh, so Uman and Thumum. Th- anyway, the thing, UT. Um, you, you have uh, the, the ability to, to kind of cast lots to determine a yes or no answer thing. There's that. There's later they'll see the prophets also telling them the future. But if God was quiet, which he was for many, many years, at a time, he would be quiet. They were not to go to the witch of Endor and, and try to raise the dead to get some kind of... They certainly weren't to do it. And here it's saying, don't do it. Later on we'll see, don't go to someone, don't, get, don't dance with girls who do, basically, is the, is the next one here. Um, there's the, the reading of the omen, reading the sky, some of the cloud readings that, they, that, that were going on in Canaan. Um, and then, um, what, what is this, what is this about tattoos? Have we, have we just shut down an entire industry in Christendom? I mean, it's a, I'm free to paint my body. What's, is that what he's doing here? It's in the same sentence of don't make cuts on your body for the dead. Okay. With almost a representation on your body for evil things. Can be, can be. So a lot of what's going on here with the with the cutting of the beard and the and the the hair, the the if you have it, work it. Um, it is is morning rituals of the Canaanites, of the pagans around them. They would do these. They would shave their heads. They do these things with their beards to 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 mourn. Um, Again, there's a distinctiveness. Don't be like the pagans. And then the tattoos, the cutting, the, all this stuff was, again, a, a worship. If, if it was done for the pur- purpose of saying, I belong to this deity, they carved the name of the deity or a picture or symbol of the deity in their skin or painted themselves to represent scenes from their mythology. That, again, is a pagan practice. You know, I belong to Betty. I belong to Mother or whatever. I don't know. It's just... You have these things going on that would, that would identify themselves with, God said you're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're, not, we're distinct. I'm yours, and the sign for you is not a tattoo. It's not being forbidden. It's, it's circumcision, the covenant sign. That's and the holy life that, you're, that I'm calling you to live. Okay, holiness requires that God's people neither worry nor grieve as the pagans do, but trust him as his distinct people. Look at verse 29. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. What's going on here? When they're poor, why? Yeah, why would somebody, why would somebody 
put his daughter through this? Desperate they're desperate. They need money. Instead of doing that, they should be trusting God. Okay. For some pagan rituals, there was like entrance to the religious rites that that deity as well. So we had a whole temple prostitution thing, a, re- a religious ritual of prostitution. They would sell their daughters into it to make money and as, a, as an entrance into that sect or cult or whatever. That's something they would do. How does he describe this? What is it, what is it doing to the girl? Profaning her. Is that language you... What, what else do we see that language being used of? God. God. Notice the identity that he has with someone who's weaker in the culture, a girl. And yet he identifies with her as a covenant daughter. If you're not going to be a father, remember that I am, right? This is my covenant daughter. Don't profane her. And what is this about the land? Why would that... Lest the land... It shows the, the effects upon the community. It's not just you. It shows the effects on the community. It's not just you. It's, well, hey, Joe's doing it. He got a pretty penny for his daughter. Mine's prettier than hers. His, whatever. Right? The whole land falls into this because they're trying to outbid each other. You got a bidding war going on for which daughter's going to make it into the next temple, you know, catwalk or whatever. So you have this whole thing of the land falling into depravity. Um... What is he calling them to do instead? Sabbath. Reverence my sanctuary. What is the Sabbath? Work harder, you can work yourself out of poverty. It's God's day. What are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? Does that if you're poor and someone who really desires to get out of poverty? And you see a quick, some quick money by selling your daughter, using her as a commodity rather than as a person made in the image of God. Does it flow naturally that you take a day off? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, welfare notwithstanding, generally people want to be industrious enough to go get themselves out of... Well, people should be, want to be industrious enough to get themselves out of poverty. But in that... Don't sell your daughter into sex slavery. I'm, I freed you from slavery. Remember the Sabbath. It's a day of freedom, a day of rest, a day that I've called you to trust me. Don't gather manna on the seventh day. Trust me on the sixth. You know, that whole idea is there. And reverence the temple. Reverence the tabernacle. Why? What you do in the tabernacle, are you going to sell your daughter into slavery and worship these other gods and, and defame my tabernacle? I mean, that's, that's the idea. It's, it's a call toward distinctiveness and holiness. Um, look at verse 31. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord. It's a call to holy wisdom. Verse 26 forbids them from practicing the fortune-telling stuff, but verse 31 bans them from consulting with someone who does practice it. Who are necromancers? 
Sauron. They consult the dead for answers, thinking of the witch of Endor calls up, which is an interesting thing that, that uh, Samuel did appear. Let that rock your world for a little bit. And she was surprised too. Yeah, she was surprised too. But I don't know that we're going to go down that road this morning. <laughs> see, I see Grant gearing up. Uh, who are the in the Septuagint? Just a quick note in the Greek the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In fifteen out of sixteen cases, whenever this word is used, it's translated ventriloquist. Certainly, the translators from the Hebrew to the Greek back in the the old days viewed this as a as a trickery thing. This is a deceptive thing. They're ventriloquists, you know. Mediums, what are they? Is there a difference? I don't think they're supposed to be some sort of corporeal summoning. Okay. Thing. Yeah, but there's just a familiarity with them. Can hear them, and I guess. yeah. Similar, it's a similar deal, but I think you're right. I think there's not some, I call them up so you can see them. It's more of a, it's more of a, I can hear them. You can trust me. Because right, because, me yes. And I hope a good breeze comes and <laughs> flutters a candle at just the right time, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So again, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of seeking wisdom, seeking knowledge from where it's, it's not to be found, really. Um, God is the author of wisdom. Holiness seeks wisdom from the true source, which is Yahweh himself, not from a charlatan. Uh, look at verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Why? Why? The usefulness has left. They can't work in the field. They can't remember what happened 30 minutes ago. Why? Why do this? As someone who's remembering less and less, <laughs> they're still part of your community. They're still part of your community. They're still a child of God. Still a child of God in the image of God. They're still your elder. St- they still came before you. They so- came before you. What does that tell you about God's economy, God's societal construct? There, what? It's not, it's not built around productivity, respect, or the heritage of those who came before you, they have more life experience. How many times do we see in Scripture, remember? Right? Remember. And as these World War II vets are slipping away from us, we're forgetting. Uh, As the Korean vets are slipping away from us, we're forgetting. Um, Remember. Honoring the aged helps to maintain a decent society. As we age, we get slower and weaker. Not an excuse to just let yourself go, but it does happen. This reverence protects those who become more easily victimized. And what else is it? What does he say? He ends on it. He ends it with... Fear God. Fear God. Why? When I'm respecting someone who's older than me, who's been in authority over me, say my dad, and I respect him, what am I showing? Obedience. Obedience. Why? Because God has set that order up. 
And his authority over me as a child derived from God's authority over me that still exists. And, I, and again, that is a, I don't stand for my dad, but I do respect him. And I ask him a lot of questions. Usually it involves plumbing. I don't know why that is. <laughs> and other things. But I respect him because he came before me and the authority that he had over me as a child derives from God. And in my respect for him, I'm still respecting or trying to respect and fear God. That's what the deal is. And the, and the, the society is to be built around this understanding of honor and respect. Holiness respects God's ordained operation of society and doesn't toss it aside because of convenience. 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall, do him, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is, we saw this last week, didn't we? And we forgot to tell Philip about it last week, that it was 18 and not verse 8. Um, we saw this last week. What's going on here? Isn't this a hot issue in our culture right now? How do you love the sojourner? Does that make us feel uncomfortable as blue-blooded Republicans? Red-blooded, I guess, depending on the colors of the... Does that make us feel uncomfortable? Loving the sojourner... Does that require that Israel have no borders and not guard their language or culture? No. no. How do we know that? It talks, about, it, tells them. It, it talks about how they must fall under the rules of the... The alien is to do the law just as the, the, the native is to do the law, right? As the, as the Israelite is to do the law. The, na- the, the, the alien in there is under the law of the culture. They don't create a bubble where they can practice their own culture within the borders. You're to be assimilated up to a point. Right? They still are a weaker part of society. They still don't have land. They still have very limited rights as, uh, as a person within the country. Um, but they, uh, they are not to be mistreated. Um, loving the sojourner doesn't involve seeding the cohesion of one's nation to make someone from another country feel snugly. It does mean not taking advantage of the cultural peculiarities they don't understand. They're not to be oppressed, but that's within the culture, not setting up a separate culture for them. Holiness guards the weak and reflects the mercy of God. 35 and 36. Does this need explanation? You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What is the call to there for holiness? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Be honest in business. Holiness permeates everything. How you do business with the sojourner, with your brother, with your, with your fellow Israelite. Holiness demands fair business and trading practices. Verse 37. And he ends with where he began. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. It ends with the inclusio on obedience, recognizing that these laws are not man-made, but God-given. All right, in the few minutes we have, I have very, just a, a simple thought on this passage. Just very simple. It's all well and good 
to talk about the abstract and have a ready statement on a theory of holiness, but it's something else entirely to live it out practically. Holiness is something we talk about a lot, right? We have lots of discussions on holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We, we do all this stuff. How many of us are pursuing being conformed to His image? How, how are we pursuing that? In Leviticus, holiness wasn't something that people talked about with bated breath as they comp- contemplated the divine nature. This is very practical to them. This is a very rubber hits the road. How I live in holiness affects everything. It was something they were called to live out in messy relationships, in their service to clients on the job, in the management of their resources, in the authenticity of their worship. One of the smart guys says this, Holiness takes on a relational and experiential meaning. It's not just a quality or power associated with the divine being. Holiness is manifest in relationships characterized by integrity, honesty, faithfulness, and love. Paul says it this way, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control And here's the thing that scares me. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What does that mean? Practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. That's that's a gut punch, isn't it? Lest I should be disqualified. What does that mean? What does that mean? Lest I should be disqualified. What is he saying? Your own actions um, and revoking your own qualifications. He, your own actions display uh, who you are can be one way to look at that. It can't be lose your salvation. It can't be lose your salvation. How is he using it here? He's a leadership issue. Tarnishing your reputation. Okay. That certainly softens it for us. Uh, He's talking about a sports metaphor, right? He's using a sports metaphor. And in sport, he's carrying it to the natural thing and the sports thing is being disqualified. What is he trying to be qualified for here? Teaching, preaching. That the gospel would be effective with the, that he would be an effective minister of the gospel. He's using the sports metaphor, but his object is effectiveness in sharing the gospel. How we live affects our witness. I don't want to be disqualified from sharing the gospel. That's that's a big deal. If I'm known as a blowhard who always has something pseudo-profound to say to try and make others think how smart I am or how well-read I am, but my life reflects nothing different than your average American pagan, I'm beating the air in vain. I'm disqualified. Yeah, he talks a good game, but gosh, have you seen, have you heard the stories from his dates? Right? He talks a good game, but gosh, did you, did you see how he handled that client and really got all that money out of them and didn't really give anything in return? Right? 
Emulating the holiness of God involves serving others often to your hurt. Sometimes honesty and integrity are painful things that don't add to your bank account or get you added to the cool kids group text. Sometimes faithfulness and love require something else that is absolutely dreadful. Patience. Patience with people that annoy the fire out of you. There's a reason that some translations use the word long-suffering for patience. Right now, what does my life display about the beauty and faithfulness of Jesus? I cringe at that question. I cringe at it. Do you? <laughs> Do we think in those terms? And not that this is a cop-out to try to quit, to, to quit trying, but Romans 7 tells me that Paul thought that too. He cringed at that question. Knowing that he would never arrive, though, didn't give Paul an excuse to stop fighting his sin or fighting for holiness. He said in Philippians 3, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice how he grounds the pursuit of holiness. In the, I'm already Christ's. I'm already his. I'm not, I'm not, again, it's the assurance, but press on to look like him. Because he's made me his own, he says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and casually strolling forward to what lies ahead. Is that what he says? He says straining. Straining. I press on toward the goal of, for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. You can't finesse holiness in your life by always having the obscure author, author quote with no sacrificial love for others to put some meat under that sauce. Holiness gets real only when we live out the love of Christ to others. It was real for them. It had to be real for them. He put it in very practical terms. I, I don't want us, and I think we oftentimes do in our circles, live in the theoretical and it's, it's very practical. Puritans are great about that. Finding experiential ways to practice holiness. And it's um, part of that practicing is loving neighbor. And since they're starting church in five minutes, we probably ought to go. So we love our neighbor. Um, I'll pray. Father, this is very convicting. Uh, I know it is for me. I love to live in theory. I love to think about the lofty things and not get concrete with them and how they should be worked out in day-to-day -day living. Lord, would you give us wisdom? Because we're fools here. We need wisdom to, to discern what does the pursuit of holiness look like, how to go about it, how not to be discouraged when we fail, and how to rest in the finished work of Christ to push us forward in our pursuit of holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Those are hard words, and I pray that they put a fire under our feet to be single-focused, to be committed to looking like Jesus, 
if the rest of life burns, let us run hard toward Him. We thank You that we are found in Him, we are owned by Him, because Christ Jesus has made us His own. May we rest in Him and work hard to look like Him. In His name we pray. Amen. What was the uh, reference that Paul was doing in the race and the boxing? Where is that from? That's in 1 Corinthians.